Okay, Alhamdulillah. Um, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, we are hosting this live stream on understanding Shia and Sunni perspectives on Ashura. Um, so today actually is Ashura um, and we have invited- Tomorrow is Ashura. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow. So tonight, so starting tonight uh, at Maghrib. Um, so, We've actually uh, invited our past Khatibas, um, Sister Shabnan Deuji um, and Ann Myers, um, who both delivered uh, khutbas on Ashura from the Shia and the Sunni perspective uh, a few years ago. And um, if you guys have been keeping up with our newsletter for the Women's Mosque of America, um, we have been recently uh, releasing all of our videos. Um, and it just so happened that the last two videos that we had to release were the two of theirs. Um, and it was going to happen, uh, coincide with Ashura. So um, we were very happy um, to coordinate this live stream event for you. And um, if you guys have any questions, please just comment them in uh, the comments below. And then Samia, um, our Director of Operations, is going to be um, taking, uh, taking a look at that and she'll let us know um, uh, if those questions come up. So first of all, um, could could you each give me just a, a brief uh, bio? I know I don't I don't have your updated bio. If you guys can give a brief introduction of yourselves, whoever wants to go first, don't be polite. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, my name is Ann Myers. Um, I was the former director of operations uh, for the Women's Mosque of America from 2017 to 2018, um, right before Samia started. Um, I'm currently uh, a senior library clerk. Um, at the a, a public library in Albany, New York. I did my undergraduate degree at Wellesley uh, College and uh, did a master's degree um, at Harvard Divinity School where I studied um, Islamic studies, um, Islamic chaplaincy. Um, and that has led me to do library work and inshallah one day in the future I'll, I'll be a chaplain. <laughs> Allah. Well, I, I, you know, I'm obviously um, live in Southern California and I miss you, Anne. <laughs> you used to be here and now you've gone. I have been involved with my community, also known as Sigla, in the Pico, in Pico Rivera for a number of years. I've served as the vice president on the board there, a treasurer. And in the last decade, I have devoted my life to um, interfaith activities intra and interfaith, along with my husband, who is very active in that arena. Uh, we hope every day that uh, every effort we make creates more understanding between people. There has been, nobody has ever said we cannot coexist differently. We just have to respect and, and treat each other the way we would want to be treated. Um, having said that, I've been the principal of the Sunday school at Sigla for the last uh, Oh, maybe just two decades now. I don't know. I stopped counting, um, but it is my joy and pleasure. And that's what I do. My full-time job is in technology. I work for AT&T right now and uh, it keeps me very busy. And I just became a grandma, which is a wonderful feeling. So <laughs> that's enough about me. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and Samia, you can give a, a, a bio as well. Assalamualaikum everyone. Assalamualaikum. My name is Samia and other than being the 
Director of Operations for the Women's Mosque of America. I'm a happiness expert. So I teach people how to be happy. And um, yeah, it's just really my joy to be here with you all. And you also have uh, had a lot of experience with interfaith work as well, right? Yes, I love engaging in interfaith dialogue and community building. That's the thing I do for fun. Awesome. Um, so my name is Hasna Maznavi. I'm the founder and president of the Women's Mosque of America, which is uh, the nation's first women-led Muslim house of worship. Um, and as you can see, we have so many lovely women who have been a part of our project um, over the years, um, both internally and also as uh, khatibas. And so um, it really is a community of amazing women. Um, and, uh, and really, we invite you to come to our event you know, once we open up again, um, subscribe to our newsletter, um, watch all of our khutbah videos on YouTube. Um, we really have so much untapped potential within our ummah. Um, and it's important that uh, we really uh, highlight these voices and the perspectives that come from them. Um, so today we're really, uh, we're really happy to be hosting this event. Um, and it just so happens that today uh, coincides with the March on Washington, MLK's March on Washington. Um, and um, as we'll see today when we're discussing um, this issue of Shia and Sunni unity, um, and particularly on Ashura, um, this concept of, of justice and of, um, of looking at the past um, in, in light of that justice um, is really relevant. So um, first of all, I just wanna ask both of you, Anne and Shabnam, um, what were your um, sort of reactions that you got the day that you delivered uh, your chuppah and your bayan? And um, I know it was a few years ago, but um, how did people generally react? Like, was it what you expected or um, what were they saying to you? Well, for me, I remember that I was uh, completely humbled. For most people, it was probably the first time then they expressed that to me, that they'd even heard about uh, the granddaughters of the prophet and the family who that experienced that day of Ashura. And in many cases, um, it was educational for them and building a, a, new, a new beginning of understanding what that day really meant for the Shias. So I, re I remember that feedback, but I also have to share my feedback after Anne's khutbah. My feedback was, first of all, I, I, there were some things that Anne shared I had no idea that that is what the, the Sunnis do on the day of Ashura. So it was a learning moment for me that I, to this day, cannot stop praying for Anne because she educated me that day, alhamdulillah. So that's that's what I remember of that day. I unfortunately don't really remember um, reactions from other people, but um, I do remember my reaction listening to uh, Sister Shabnam's khutbah and you know, I I had some knowledge about um, Shia Islam oh, and Ashura and Karbala, um, but just listening to her khutbah really made me just hungry to learn more. There was so much that I didn't know about my own history as a Muslim, um, our own history um, as a Muslim, um, about these figures, the Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, and just how much 
I personally was missing out um, on knowing these people and having a relationship with these people and, and these events. And, you know, for that, I'm, I'm really grateful, very grateful, because I mentioned in my bayan as a Sunni, um, or, you know, when I first started learning about Islam, I learned from the Sunni perspective, and this just wasn't something that was taught to me. Um, I had to learn it from um, a friend of mine in college who was Shia um, and mentioned um, Ashura to me, um, because otherwise, you know, I've, I might have never even known. And, you know, I think that would have, you know, that's just a real, a real disadvantage for anyone that doesn't know about Ashura and Karbala. Um, yeah, um, so uh, if you haven't already watched uh, their videos, I really encourage you to do so. Um, so Anne's uh, pre-clip of Bayan was on understanding um, Shia and Sunni perspectives on Ashura. Um, and then I just want to get the title correctly. So then Shabnam's, uh, Sister Shabnam's khutbah was on the Prophet's granddaughter and Muslim women leaders of Karbala. Um, so um, just a quick note on that, why we do the bayan and the khutbah um, and how that ties into pluralism and how we can work together, um, you know, as Shias and Sunnis. So um, one of the things that we have at the Women's Mosque of America is um, we have a very strong middle ground policy and that's our strongest value. And so what this means is that um, no matter what we do, we always wanna do it in a way where we can be inclusive of, uh, of as many Muslims as possible. So um, when we first started out and we realized that there were some Muslim women who um, had a difference of opinion on the matter of prayer, of women-led prayer, um, particularly in terms of the khutbah, the Friday khutbah, um, what we did was we came up with a system um, to make sure that uh, no matter what your perspective is, you still can speak to our congregation. And no matter what your perspective is, you still can participate in a way where you don't feel like you are ever uh, compromising on your religious values um, or your beliefs. And, you know, some people might think, oh, you know, is that an innovation, the, the, the <laughs> four letter word, bida? Um, no, it's not actually. You know, if you go into Islamic history um, at a certain point in a Islamic history, actually, there were, I believe, four or five different prayers that were happening simultaneously around the Kaaba um, for each different, um, well, I believe it was for uh, each different Sunni madhab, but they were doing this simultaneous prayers in the same space um, as a way to share that space, but also um, hold on to the, each other or hold on to their own um, values. Um, and so with that, why don't we um, just take a a, a moment and hear just a brief overview of the Sunni um, perspective on Ashura and its significance, and then also this, the Shia view. So Anne, why don't you start off, and then um, Sister Shabnam, you'll, uh, you can go next. So the Sunni perspective of Ashura, um, it's mostly based um, on, on two different hadiths um, or sayings of the Prophet Muhammad wasalam, peace be upon him. One of them is that uh, the Prophet came uh, across some a group of Jews um, who are fasting um, on the day of Ashura, um, which is the tenth day um, of the month of Muharram, and we're in the month of Muharram now. Um, and he asked 
um, so he asked uh, this group, uh, you know, what are you doing? And they said, we're fasting today. Uh, today's a good day. It's the day that um, Prophet Musa, uh, Moses, and uh, the children of Israel uh, were freed from slavery uh, from Pharaoh. Um, so after the Prophet heard this, um, he uh, decided to fast that day also um, and encouraged uh, the Muslims also to fast. Um, and then there is another hadith um, on the merit of um, Ashura and fasting Ashura and how it will, um, if you fast the day of Ashura, um, your sins from the previous year uh, will be forgiven. Um, so it's highly recommended um, to fast um, this day of Ashura. It's not, it's not a required uh, fast, but um, if you are able to do it, it's, it's a, a highly recommended act of worship. Um, I believe at one point um, it was even considered a required fast. Uh, this was before um, the revelation on uh, fasting during the month of Ramadan. Um, so uh, before the Ramadan fast, uh, the Ashura fast um, was something that um, the Muslims did. And there is, um, you know, Sunnis, obviously, like they do, we do, you know, love and respect Imam Hussein and acknowledge that uh, the Battle of Karbala happened that day and that Imam Hussein was murdered, um, martyred on that day. Um, but I would say in general, Sunnis don't do any specific observance um, related to the Battle of Karbala um, and this martyrdom. Um, it's mostly the main act of worship for Sunnis on Ashura is fasting. As far as, far as I know, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not an Islamic scholar or um, like a scholar of Islam in a, um, in a secular academic sense, but this is just as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Sister Shepard? So um, in the Shia perspective uh, of the day of Ashura, um, it was a day of uh, sacrifice for, for the grandson of the prophet and his family. And the circumstances around it is one thing that uh, I think we probably, even we don't do a good job in education. And that is keeping in mind what the, what the political situation was at that time. That the political situation at that time, 50, merely 50 years after the death of the Holy Prophet had become deteriorated, you know? The Khilafat of the first four Khalifas had ended with Imam Ali's Khilafat. And after that, it was the Muawiyah and the Umayyad dynasty that took over. And just the very term of dynasties, whether it was the Umayyad or the Abbasid following the Umayyad, the history of Islam after that had become under these kind of governorships. So uh, things had deteriorated. And the, our holy Imam Hussein, he, you know, it was like a choice, a choice that was given to him. Do you pay allegiance to Yazid, who was the Umayyad, uh, uh, proclaimed Umayyad Khalifa of the Muslims or not. And uh, when he looked at the uh, actions of the government at the time and he realized these are not people who represent my grandfather. And so he did a khutbah in Medina before he left in the month of the Hajj. And he said, I am leaving the city of my beloved grandfather to go towards Kufa where the people had invited him to reform 
the message of my grandfather because it has been lost. And as he was assessing, because the Yazid required his allegiance and he was not going to give that, he said, you know, people like me cannot do allegiance with people like him. And so I am on my way to reform. Um, and he took his family with him. So it wasn't a battle, it wasn't a planned war or anything like that. Uh, he was just standing up against what at that time was was not a good situation for the Muslims. I mean, the government of, of Muawiyah uh, was indulging in uh, acts that were uh, haram in our faith. And so that was the reason he stood up. So on that day of Ashura, when the entire family of the Holy Prophet, all of the male members, most of them, were annihilated and murdered and, and tortured. And in, and in your lecture, in your bayan, I remember you using the word mutilated because it was that way. Um, the Shias on the day of Ashura observed that day as a vigil. Uh, we actually, it is highly recommended to fast in the first nine days of the Hajj, uh, of Muharram. But the 10th day, because fasting is seeking pleasure with Allah, the 10th day, the Shias, because we use it as a day of mourning and vigil, we do not fast because it is not a happy occasion. And you will find most of us on this day, we will start our day with prayers. We read chapters of the Quran that, that remind us of injustice and how to treat the family of the Prophet. Three of the common chapters that we read on that day are Surah Ahzab and Surah Al-Kafirun and Surah Al-Munafiqun. And then we do a maqtal. Maqtal is actually the story time. We narrate the events of that day on the day of Ashura from the sunrise with the start of the Fajr Adhan until Asr when the Imam was murdered and his beheaded. And so at that point, the day ends of the battle itself or the, the conclusion. So our observance ends on that at that time. And then at our centers, you'll find most people will either do uh, poetry, uh, lamentation. We either go visit the cemetery because it is more of a reflection on ultimately where am I headed, even if you have no one buried in that cemetery. You'll find the entire day is spent that way. And we come back and right before Maghrib, we do another session of, uh, of reflection because at that time we remember the women and children of Karbala because at that, as night dawned for them, it was a very difficult night for them. Uh, so the, we spend the day in a vigil, in a solemn vigil, uh, paying tribute to the Imam and his family. Thank you for that. You know, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, my own journey, um, uh, learning about Shia Islam and learning about just Islamic history in general. Um, and I do want to preface this and say that I do not uh, call myself a Sunni. I don't identify as Sunni or Shia. Um, I very purposely only call myself a Muslim or Mu'min um, just for my own beliefs that, you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, only called himself a Muslim and Mu'min, so um, a believer and a submitter. So um, I don't uh, subscribe to either label. Um, that said, um, I was brought up in uh, the Sunni uh, theology. Um, and I remember in high school, um, uh, a non-Muslim friend was like, oh, are you a Sunni or Shia? And I was like, I don't 
know. And there was a, a girl, um, a Muslim friend of mine who overheard and she was like, oh, trust me, you're Sunni. I was like, I don't think so. I am just Muslim. <laughs> um, and so that was very, you know, um, then as I got to college um, and actually growing up in our mosque, um, uh, we would see Shias, we would know they were Shias because they would pray with their hands down. But other than that, I was completely ignorant. Um, and then when I got to college, um, I had uh, Shia friends in our MSA. Everyone was together again. Um, and I found out at a certain point um, that the Shias were having a separate Jumma. And I told my friend, I remember I was saying, oh my God, that's crazy. Why are they doing, you know, why are we having separate Sunni and Shia Jummas? We should have one. And I was literally like getting up because I was going to go and try and, and get them to combine naively thinking like, oh, they just don't know that, you know, we're, we're having duplicate Jummas. We, someone needs to tell them. Um, and then my friend and stopped me and she was like no you can't do that you can't pray behind a shia and i was like why not and she just couldn't explain it to me then from there um i think i went to one of my uh shia's friends uh mom had passed away and i went to an event at her mosque um and that was the first time i had heard um ali wali allah um at, after the shahada and that was my first time really understanding oh there are some uh pretty significant differences even though I had grown up hearing there aren't, you know, it's just a political difference. There's, it's not a big deal. Um, and then from there, um, I think uh, as I got older um, and in grad school joined uh, an intrafaith halakha um, where the wife leading it was Sunni and the husband was Shia, um, literally half of our uh, halakhas were always Sunni and Shia. And um, one night there was just this big debate and it went on until I think three in the morning. And afterwards, it was the first time in my life I just felt, you know, uh, I just felt horrible to be a Muslim. I was like, what is this? I didn't know that there was this type of division and I didn't know that the feelings were so strong on either side. Um, and so from there, um, I did my own research and I, I tried to read as many books as I could um, uh, on just the that lost history. Um, and the book that really changed the game for me was Destiny Disrupted um, by Tamim Ansari. Um, so he is a historian um, who was working in the US uh, educational system um, in Texas and you know, creating history books for school and um, for American schools and saw that um, the Islam chapter was so tiny even though the Islamic empire was so huge and spanned for so many uh, hundreds of years, but he kept getting met with resistance every time he would want to uh, add more Islamic history into um, world history books. Um, and so finally, he wrote this book, Destiny Disrupted. Um, and um, in my struggle to try and find, you know, how did the Shia Sunni split begin? That was my question. Um, this was the book that really uh, laid it out in the least biased way possible and I felt in the most even-handed way possible. So I want to recommend that book to everybody um, because it really gave light to both sides of what happened. And essentially what I got from it was that what was surprising to me was that, you know, after the death of the prophet, peace be upon him, um, there were disagreements about, you know, who should lead next. Um, and obviously the, whoever was going to lead next wasn't going to lead as a prophet. 
nonprofit, but they were going to lead um, the community. And um, that is actually not what started the Shia Sunni split. The Shia Sunni split started um, when there were these leaders who were mistreating Muslims and mistreating people in the Prophet's family. And it was uh, several years after that, I think even a hundred years after that, that really that split began as a reaction to uh, the injustices of that day. So um, even in the book, it talks about how, you know, Ali, uh, the cousin of the Prophet and son-in-law, um, and Aisha, the wife of the prophet, were squared off about to engage in battle with one another. And they both met that night and uh, had peace talks and they both agreed to not fight. And it was actually people within their camps that started fighting and began the battle um, against the leaders, against Ali and Aisha's um, instructions. Um, so I really encourage, you know, everyone to read that book because I think what we are seeing, um, you know, uh, not only in terms of Shia Sunni unity, but in, even in terms of um, just the lost history of Muslim women leaders uh, in Islam and how there were tens of thousands of Muslim women scholars who led our ummah, um, we are completely uh, ignorant of uh, our history as a whole and we're really missing out. Um, so I wanted to hear from you guys, uh, maybe all three of you, can you talk about you know, your introduction to um, the split between Shia and Sunni Islam? Um, you know, how did that happen? How early and um, what were your thoughts at the time and, and um, how has that evolved since then? Well, um, for me, uh, in my perspective and what I've always learned growing up and even to this day, is that the, you're right, there was no Sunni, Shia, nobody, there was no label on any Muslim, you know, uh, and the Quran is very clear about that as well, you know, that in the eyes of Allah, the person who is most God conscious and righteous is the one who is the, the, the highest elevated. So it is not about our labels, uh, much like it is not about our origins and color of skin, etc. My understanding is that it all started after the death of the prophet. Uh, you know, there are certain qualities that I have come to understand, whether it is in this in this era we live in, in our presidency that we're in, or even before that, that people uh, have, there are certain things that we just, you know, they're negative traits in us, whether it is greed or power or control. When you are a leader, there are certain qualities of a leader we should look at. And of all the people, the prophet would have wanted that, you know, because he said, there is not going to be a prophet after me. And this is till the end of time. Now, prior to that, so many prophets, so many scriptures. And how was he going to leave his world without, without any support? So it was very important for him to make things very clear what his needs are. Um, according to the tafsir and the historic narrations, um, there are several events prior to his death that he, uh, he said, the most righteous amongst me is Ali. He grew up with me. He was in the household of the, of the uh, revelation. He's married to my daughter and uh, he will be your leader after you. In his point of view, that's where the religion would have been sustained. Nonetheless, history took a different turn uh, again 
uh, there were several companions and mashallah, all of them were close to the Prophet. And so each one of them felt that they were entitled to that next chapter in their lives. Uh, fast forward a few years and now we're at the fourth Khilafat when, when Imam Ali now is the Khalifa of the Muslims and he is now establishing his government in the city of Kufa. He moved it from Medina because there was a lot of, you know, he had insight on what was going on in Damascus in that area where the people who were power play, that was happening over there. And uh, Muawiyah was, you know, an arch enemy, um, you know, of, of, of the Imam. And he was also his father, Abu Sufyan, was the same with the Prophet. So the history and the legacy of power and control carried over. And there was a lot, and you know, when we read history, no matter which perspective we read, and by the way, there are so many different lens we can all look at history, because look at today, yeah? <laughs> if it's Fox News or CNN, it's, somebody's going to say that's history. Um, and so we have to be mindful of whose lens we are reading the history. And so uh, at that time, you know, the history records, no matter which perspective you look at, that these um, rulers were uh, tyrants. And, and that, that was not right. So the way I have uh, learned is you're right, the labeling didn't come much later. And in fact, I, I loved your story about going to the masjid of the Shia mosque and hearing the Ashhadu Anna Aliyun Waliyullah. Uh, the history behind that is there was a time when Muawiyah would pay or threaten the Muaddins to curse Imam Ali at the pulpit during the Adhan. And so when you are going to do that in the Adhan, it was the followers of Ali who said, we must make it known that Ali was the, was the waliya, the, the word wilaya, which is the uh, inheritor of the prophet's um, you know, message. And so that's how it all started. You know? Now, is that relevant today? You know, I agree with you. It, it doesn't need to be. You know? But because we don't understand our history, um, we focus on things we don't even understand uh, instead of get, taking, I, I applaud you really, Asma. I applaud you for taking that move. And I've written the name of this book because I'm going to read it now. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I you know I didn't share um, really what my turning point was. And I, I think, um, you know, I did have that discomfort. I'll admit when I first heard uh, that phrase, um, thank you for sharing the origin of it. Cause that, you know, that lightens the load of uh, of what it can mean when you're first hearing it um, to someone who's raised with Sunni theology. Um, really, for me, the change came from uh, I I took a trip to Iran in 2012 um, for a film festival that one of my uh, short films um, had made it into. And um, while I was there, I wanted to visit you know different cities, and so I went to Mashhad, which is one of the Shia um, uh, holy sites. Um, um, I believe it's the uh, has the tomb of Imam Reza, correct? Um, and so uh, when I went there and my plane was touching down in Mashhad, um, I'm someone who I do dhikr all the time. So remembrance of God, you know, saying subhanAllah, glory be to God or alhamdulillah. I'm, I'm always trying to say those things all the time, but I never say it 
while moving my tongue um, and like in my mouth, it's more of just something in my head. But I kid you not, like as we were touching, the, the plane was touching down, I felt something come over me and my tongue started moving with salawat of the prophet and praising and blessing the prophet. And I felt, you know, this is what I have been missing out on. Um, and I think that that was such a powerful experience for me because, you know, we can uh, we can theorize all we want. We can talk about history all we want, but once you experience that love of the prophet in your heart, it it opens up, uh, opens you up, and transforms you, uh, and humbles you in a way. Um, and so that was kind of the first opening for me where I saw, oh my God, you know, there's something out there that I have been deprived of, an experience and a connection to the prophet that the Sunni theology, path of theology does not give us. Um, and uh, the second thing that I think the breaking point for me was uh, I went for Jumma at the University of Tehran um, and there are thousands of people there. And um, I was sitting in the women's section and actually um, the Jumma there is women on the right and men on the left. Um, and they have a barrier in the middle, but it is you know, equal sitting. Um, and once the prayer was over and the women around me found out that I was from America, then they were just flooding me with love and um they were like oh my sister lives in Chicago like all of this stuff right and they're all people were coming and they were just taking like they had little bits of candy in their purses they were just dropping it in front of me um and the the woman sitting next to me she didn't have anything to give me she had a little pin pinning her scarf and she took it off of her and she put it on me and she said, you are a perfect Muslim. And it, when she said that, I felt so ashamed because I felt all, I, I didn't realize I had arrogance until she said that. And I, of course, I'm not a perfect Muslim. None of us are, but for her to have the humility to say that and put that label on me, um, showed me just, just how not a perfect Muslim I was by thinking that, uh, and not consciously thinking that I was better, but thinking that I had the right way and the other way was wrong. Um, and I think that's what finally split my heart open. And I was like, okay, this is all, you know, we are all Muslim. We are all, um, you know, I, I think the best metaphor I ever heard is that um, God, if you imagine someone is hosting a party and invites people who they love to that party, and then a few of the people within that party start to fight, um, you know, who will God love more? The people who join the fight or the people who try to break up the fight out of honor for the host? And so I think we really have to think about, yes, these things have happened in our history, but who, where we are today, we really need to focus on, um, uh, on the one who brought us all here on this earth and, and try our best to, to stay together and, and heal our broken bonds, inshallah. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. I also want to hear from uh, from Anne on your experience, um, you know, learning about the the difference and, and what was like that like for you, um, especially as a convert. That must have been uh, interesting. Yeah. So for it was interesting because when I first really started to study Islam, the first exposure was with Shia Islam um, because I was really into learning about Iran. When I, yeah, so when I was first learning about Islam, um, I was learning about things that I didn't realize were specifically Shia practices like praying on a turba uh, or like a piece of, a piece of clay or a piece of earth. 
Um, so I thought that was just, you know, something that was just a Muslim thing rather than specifically a Shia thing. Um, but then as I learned more, um, you know, I didn't realize this at the time, but um, most of my sources of knowledge were coming from a Sunni perspective. Um, and so when I actually converted, um, you know, I kind of just by default became Sunni because that's what I had learned. Um, and, you know, I knew there was a, a difference, but I thought between, you know, Sunni and Shia, but I didn't know, I didn't even know even about like the, the political, like the very basic like political idea that Ali was um, about like Ali um, being the Khalifa or the, um, or inheriting the Wilayat. Um, so it wasn't until um, I had a Shia friend in college um, who, you know, told me, I guess, who taught me about Ashura, um, first of all, um, taught me different, when we would talk about Islam, um, you know, I would mention some things and she said, oh, you know, in, you know, she is like, they, they believe this, um, you know, like, uh, we were, I remember we were talking about um, a chapter of the Quran. Um, and I think I mentioned something about it and she said, oh, that's actually the, but you know, that's the Sunni perspective of the Shia perspective is actually this, um, you know, and I had, I had no idea. Um, but, you know, at that point I was still very, like very young in my Islam and still kind of trying to, you know, figure out where I was. So I guess I didn't, I didn't really think about it um, that much. Um, you know, the difference between Sunni and Shia, I was just trying to kind of get the basics, um, you know, find my place in it. Um, and then when I was in grad school, um, you know, learning, you know, doing Islamic studies, um, I think that's when I really like wanted to learn more about um, the differences between, like I realized that what I was doing, it was, it was Sunni um, and I wanted to, you know, kind of learn more about, you know, like this vast, you know, what I thought of as other um, Shia Islam. I thought of reading. Um, I didn't really know of any, I didn't know that many, I didn't have many Shia friends. I didn't really know of any Shia um, centers or mosques that I could go to. So I did a lot of reading um, and I learned about Karbala and I was so moved by it that I think it, it really changed my perspective on Islam. Um, now I see it as, you know, a very, big part of maybe not so much my theology or faith, but definitely in how I behave as a Muslim, like, you know, being, seeing, you know, the sacrifices that Imam Hussein gave, that um, the martyrs of Karbala gave, that Zainab in particular gave, um, I was just so moved that, you know, they were so willing to give up everything to speak truth to power um, and to do what they felt, what they truly felt was right, even though they were against, you know, the, the Khalifa, the most powerful, you know, the most powerful person, um, in the Islamic world. Um, so now, you know, when I am involved in, like, social justice work, or, um, kind of just anything, like, you know, reading about, um, current events today, just thinking about how, wow, you know, th there was the saying that I mentioned in my bayan um, that I believe is attributed to Ali Shariati. Um, I think Ayatollah Khomeini also said it. Um, I don't know where it actually originated, um, but the saying is, every day is 
Ashura, every land is Karbala, meaning that, you know, these kinds of injustices, but also these people fighting against injustice happens every day and everywhere. This is seen in the Black Lives Matter movement, in the Standing Rock, you know, in 2016, and the continued fight for, you know, land rights and environmental, um, like saving the environment. It can be seen everywhere. Um, and whenever I see these like injustices, you know, good versus evil, it's it's everywhere in life, and it brings me back to Karbala. And you know, I am so grateful for learning about Karbala because it's really, you know, it's shaped my thinking. It's encouraged me as a Muslim to do more, do better. Um, Sister Shabnam, how do you uh, relate um, the events of Karbala specifically to what's going on today with the Black Lives Matter movement? You know, uh, it is uh, something that um, I think of Zainab. And, and you know, to be quite honest with you, I, I sometimes feel like I'm at a loss. Mm. I just don't feel like I can, what, what can I do? What am I, what is it that I can do to, to do my part? And, you know, I feel guilty sometimes, and this pandemic doesn't help. You know, I have elderly parents in my house, so I don't go out. You know, I don't, how do I let my sisters and brothers in the Black community know I'm, I'm with them? Because I, I don't leave the house. I have to protect my, my own uh, elders right now. And so I feel hopeless. But let me tell you, there has never been a moment that these, the sacrifices of, of the day of Ashura, and the days following the tenth of Muharram, and Zainab, and and her nephew uh, Ali ibn al Hussein, how they stood up against these tyrants, and how they were not afraid. And and I have to say, today I heard a khutbah, and I, I want to quote, uh, and it was uh, it's Sayyid Qazwini's khutbah today, and he, he if a Juma, and he said, you know, there is something about Imam Hussein's message that resonates with everything. And it, the most important part, he said, was reforming. Mm. Do we think about reforming what is going on today? And it brought me back to, wow, if, if Martin Luther King could see what is going on 57 years later, and he dreamt of his children not being judged by the color of their skin, but by their, by their character. And you think character, Character is so important. And when Allah in the Quran, at so many different places says, Islam is easy, just do good, be kind to your neighbor, treat your women right, do this, do that, that is all good. And don't. And then I look around me and I tell you, Hasna, your, your question was about Black Lives Matter, but I look at Yemen right. and, and these are Muslims killing Muslims and it's just mind boggling to me. And, you know, I think, wow, if it's happening today, why are people so, it's so hard for people to believe it happened during the Umayyad and it happened during the Abbasid em Empire. It happens all the time. Uh, Americans are killing Americans, no matter what, what color of skin it is. And it is, it is, it's sad. It really is sad. And I honestly, yesterday, I, I was feeling this sense of hopelessness and then Said's lecture today gave me hope because he said we have to have hope and optimism he said because truth will always prevail and falsehood will be abolished it might take time 
maybe we don't see it in our lifetime. And that's when I realized the Dr. King's message was maybe for his grandchildren because his children are not seeing this. Right. Um, you know, so that's that was my my contemplation. I was going to say about the feeling hopelessness, I, I get that too. But it's also, I think that's why to me that Zainab is so inspiring because you know, we don't all have to be like Hussein, um, like literally giving our lives. Um, Zainab, you know, she didn't have that luxury. She was, you know, left to, to mourn. Um, and she, I'm sure she felt hopeless after, especially, you know, the night after Ashura, um, when she was left in charge of all the women and his children, and when she was being taken to Damascus and they were in the dungeon, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of hopelessness. And the only thing that she could do was to speak up and to remember. Um, and, you know, those are all things that, you know, even if we can't leave the house or physically participate in, you know, the things that we want to, we can, we can speak up and we can remember. And I think that's, you know, it might not seem like a lot, but, you know, it's because of, it's because of Zainab that we know about Karbala today. It's, it's, you know, this idea of witnessing, I mean, that's built, it's the first pillar of faith, Shahada, being able to witness, to bear witness and to speak out. I think that's, you know, that is, that is something that we can, we can always do. And, and, and I would like to end with just two points here. One, one point is that's why things like voting is so important. Right. You know, please, everybody, put it in your calendars, November 3rd. You take the day off if your company doesn't give you the day off, but please vote. Samia, did you want to say something? Team or a question of, like, why it is actually so important for us to remember our history accurately and truthfully. I have been, uh, for the last two, three weeks, actually part of this uh, virtual civil rights journey as part of um, it's been organized through the sisterhood of Salam Shalom which is an interfaith Muslim Jewish uh, group and one of the things that I was learning about uh, I think it was just last week we, we we were learning about the myth of the lost cause now I'm an immigrant to the U.S. Okay, so uh, the, like I have, I didn't go to school here. I went straight into college, and so there's a lot about American history and American culture that I don't know. Like I didn't learn in school and so forth. You know, and I, so I'm still very much learning. And I never heard about heard about this uh, myth of the lost cause. Apparently, what it is is that after the defeat of the Confederacy. Uh, you know, the southern states primarily, um, you know, and uh, they were like trying to figure out how to deal with and reconcile with this history of the Civil War. And being the people who were def defeated and proved to be on the wrong side of history and so forth. And so they created this like whole story, you know, or, or myth of the lost cause, where they basically... Uh, retold, almost uh, attempted to, and very successfully to a large extent, they succeeded in literally rewriting American history in, in a way where when we now, uh, so many people, when they think about 
why the civil war happened. Like there are so many polls that show that a lot of Americans don't realize the main cause and reason the civil war happened was slavery. Most people think it was an issue of state rights. They think it was an issue of the, the North and the South having political differences and the South, you know, um, trying to defend itself and so forth uh, from invasion and, and having a, a hostile takeover by the North. And it made me think about how there's this like the sense of denial, right, in this story uh, around the injustice that was committed uh, by us as Americans, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 the evil of slavery that, that was happening and trying to distance ourselves from that and not even acknowledge that was something that we participated in. And then as I was listening to your khutbah sister, Shabnam, about what happened in Karbala and how ugly and disgusting that was. And it was all Muslims, you know, we were all Muslims. There was no Shia Sunni at that time. No one thought of themselves as Shia Sunni. So they were all, we were all Muslims, uh, acknowledging, calling ourselves Muslims and then behaving in such disgusting ways uh, where, you know, we're like literally participating in the murder um, of innocent people, including you know, the family of the prophet, uh, like just how disgusting that is. And, and now we don't want to remember that. And we, 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 we want to distance ourselves from that. So like for me, there's this very strong parallel that is emerging in my mind between how, you know, with the myth of this lost cause, the, the white, uh, uh, white people, you know, try to distance themselves from their participation in, in slavery and the civil war and so forth. And now it's like the Sunni world is trying to like erase all this his, ugly history of how Muslims acted, um, you know, if, and, you know, just not even, not even like remember, remember it. It's just, it, it uh, calls to mind like how people are uh, currently trying to take these offensive statues down all across America and then other people are in denial um, or maybe blissfully ignorant um, and want to stay that way. Um, but I think there's actually pain in that. You know, when you stay blissfully ignorant, you are actually suffering because um, you are disconnected from the truth. And yes, it's true. When you first learn about the real history, it is painful. You will experience cognitive dissonance. You will feel uncomfortable. You will feel guilty. You'll feel horrible. But on the other side of that is such freedom uh, and such connection and um, so much agency and, and power. Um, because really, even in learning, you know, from this book, Destiny Disrupted, learning about Islamic history and learning about um, just the vast diversity of Islam uh, that existed pre-colonialism. You know, it was very recently that um, a lot of the diversity in Islam was killed off quite literally because of colonialism um, and because of one brand of Islam um, being aligned with uh, a capitalist, you know, um, uh, uh, um, what's the word? A colonial adventure, um, uh, it erased it, erased a lot of our history. And um, 
what we what we get from this is that we suffer. We suffer from not uh, getting that closeness and connection to the prophet and to the prophet's family, peace be upon them all. Um, we suffer, you know, even in in terms of uh, Sufi Islam. Like there's so much um, uh, of Sufi Islam that used to be a part of. Uh, considered part of the mainstream, but now it's considered a sect and now it's considered a separate thing. Um, and so we really do uh, miss out as Muslims um, when we don't know these other parts of ourselves. And um, this is why I really appreciate, you know, um, all of you coming together, you know, um, in our jummas, in our jummah circles, we get to look at all of our, our faces, we get to hear all of the voices and we get to see the diversity and experience the diversity um, of our ummah. So um, I wanna thank you guys again for, for doing this. And um, uh, I wanna also ask you, um, what is something that you wish people would know or maybe a misconception uh, or two that you'd like to clear up? Um, uh, but what is one something, uh, something you wish people would know about Shia Islam or about Sunni Islam? I think, I guess I would say to other Sunni Muslims, um, you know, this is something I had to learn because Sunni Islam is, you know, the majority um, among Muslims, like just there are just a lot more Sunni Muslims than there are Shia Muslims in the world, except for, you know, like places in Iran, Iraq, Azerbaijan. But for the most part, and in America, America included, um, the great majority of Muslims here are going to be Sunni. I would remind them that Sunni Islam is not, is not the only way to look at Islam. That there is, like you said, you know, like uh, aspects of Sufism that were, you know, considered mainstream are now considered, you know, Sufi, specifically Sufi. Um, you know, love of the Ahl Bayt, um, the family of the Prophet وسلم, is not just a Shia thing, it's, it's a Muslim thing. So to not, you know, see Sunni Islam as, you know, the, the only way. Um, and to, you know, I'd really, I would encourage Sunnis to, you know, look, look more into you know, Shia belief, um, look into, if not, if not Shia belief, then, you know, look more into the lives of the Ahl Bayt, because, you know, it is part of our history, it's part of our theology to love, you know, to love and honor the Prophet and, and his family, the people who he loved. So just kind of acknowledge that, and for people that say that they are just Muslim, um, you know, a lot of times people that say they are just Muslim, you know, actually are Sunni, and they might not even realize it. Um, you know, that's, that's not always the case, of course, but to, you know, for people to think about how if you are Sunni, then you do have a, you know, you do have Sunni privilege, essentially, um, you know, in the U.S., in a lot of places, um, you know, Sunnis, you know, sometimes you know, it can be as bad as, you know, um, you know, mass killings of, of Shias. Um, but even even if there's not mass killings of Shias, just the idea that Sunni Islam is the default and seeing Shia Islam as you know, something else or something lesser, um, I would just encourage Sunnis to to think about that, um, to realize you know that they have this privilege, and to learn more about their history, learn more about the Halabate, um, maybe just learn more if you know if they want to go deeper into it, learn more about Shia theology. Um, learn more about uh, Sunni theology, just learn more, read more, be, be more aware. 
it's it will Great only advice. it will only um be good for you absolutely thank you Anne. and then sister shabnam so um i remembered my other thing is make okay. sure you fill out your census Yes, yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so my civic duty is vote and fill out your census. And um, for the vote too, if you um, if you want to uh, fill out your ballot, early voting ballot, you can turn it in in person just to make sure that it goes through. So if you're worried about uh, the mail and the post office being sabotaged, um, you still can drop that off and, and get your vote in. Inshallah. Yeah, very good. So uh, I'm humbled by what Anne said, really. And I, and I think what uh, if there is any parting words here, we as Muslims should realize that there are many things that uh, create who we are. When we, do when we look deeper within ourselves, there are so many things that make us who we are, whether it's culture or language or race, whatever it, is, it may be. Uh, a faith, and especially the Muslim faith, transcends beyond that. But when we go to our mosques and our centers, we bring our cultures into sometimes the faith. And we forget what is faith, what is culture, what is the real faith. I would encourage everyone and invite everyone to look within themselves to say what our forefathers used to do to embrace their faith and understand it may not be applicable today, uh, especially for those of us who live in in the United States or the Western Hemisphere. There are so many things the message of Karbala bring, especially the message of uh, justice and equality. So we have a tendency within our own mosques to discriminate. Mm. If you don't speak my language, if you don't whatever, whatever, the, if you don't like my kind of food, you know, it's so ridiculous. Mm. And I invite people within the Shia community and others to start taking a look and, and, and dig deeper within yourself to realize, why am I here? What is my ultimate goal? Why is it that I, on the day of Ashura, visit a cemetery? Why? That's my final resting place. What am I going to go with when I'm done here? So how am I going to live my life here? Let's start taking stock of that and inviting everyone within our circle and embracing everyone's perspective because God created us different. He knew we could live together. He wouldn't have made people who are different or lands that look different and cultures that are different and languages that are different. The idea is brotherhood, sisterhood, and we completely miss the essence of all of that. And if we just go back to the history of the prophet and the advent of Islam, what types of people were some of his strongest companions? We just, if we just reflect on his idea of unity and embracing people with different backgrounds, perhaps we will get off our high horse and start to become better people. Inshallah. Inshallah. And that really, you know, that makes me think of uh, the tactic of the devil, of shaitan, of saying, I am better, I am made out of fire, Adam's made out of clay. Um, you know, it's, it really is the original sin to say that we are better than another. Um, and it also, if you want to look at history, divide and conquer tactics, that is how you weaken a people. And so if we as Muslims want to see the fate of Muslims all over the world improve because Muslims in almost every country are suffering and have been suffering um, since the time of colonialism. 
um, we really have to change ourselves before God changes our condition. And um, you just look at, you know, every single country that the British invaded after they left, um, they set things up in a way that would cause civil war. You look at the way that um, people from Africa were brought to the U.S. and purposely split up um, and placed together with other people from other African countries so that they wouldn't be able to communicate in their language, they wouldn't be able to organize, they wouldn't be able to unify. Um, and I think that is something we really have to keep in mind is that, you know, if there ever is a force that is calling you to separate, calling you to divide, calling you to put yourself above another or, you know, anything like that, really question who is, who is motivating that call and, and what does Allah actually want from us? Samia, were there any questions uh, from the Facebook Live? I see some comments, but no questions. Okay. And then Samia, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, uh, in your work with, um, with the interfaith community, um, I know you've been, you've witnessed a lot of really difficult conversations and you've seen some stuff go down. You've also seen some really great breakthroughs happen. And so I wanted to know um, if you had any tips, um, you know, working in the interfaith space that we could uh, apply to the intrafaith uh, space and inshallah have more and more um, Shia Sunni unity and have all types of Muslims because they're all also isn't just one type of Shia. They're, um, you know, different types and um, and also different sects uh, uh, other than these two main ones. So um, any tips that you have for us? Yeah, you know, the very cool thing, I think, is that ultimately the, the keys to creating healthy relationships are the same, uh, regardless of what kinds of bridges you're trying to cross in terms of differences you know because there's so many kinds of differences among based on which we tend to split ourselves you know whether it's shia sunni or uh, muslim jewish or you know fat people versus thin people or you know like we just come up with a million different reasons by which to divide ourselves but anytime you want to come back together and um, learn to love each other more and better. The basics are the same. It's like the, the first most important thing is just to sort of do the best you can to sort of put aside at least for a little while what you think you know about uh, the other side especially, but also about, you know, your general notions of reality and so forth. And just focus on listening and learning from from the other person what their perspective is. You know, like uh, one of the things that Sister Shabnam, you shared both during your khutbah and earlier today, you said, you know, fasting is seen uh, in general among in the Muslim community as something that's very joyful and uplifting and spiritual and so to fast on the day of mourning uh, is not seen as something that you uh, that would be appropriate to do and that immediately you know like gave me an insight into why a Shia person might choose not to fast uh, and I'm like, you know, if I believe that, if I held that perspective on fasting, I wouldn't fast on the day of Ashura either, you know? So it's like, what, what, when we can like really listen to the other person's perspective and just hear it 
from from their perspective and take that in then we can you know begin to empathize and um even if i don't end up agreeing with with you at least then i understand you know and it it allows that opportunity and opening for us to you know love each other <laughs> yeah and in your bayan you actually talked about uh your perspective or your personal practice on fasting on ashura can you explain that uh for anyone who hasn't seen it um yeah so um i do generally fast on ashura um, if i'm able um you know while but i also do um you know morning practices um related to uh the death of imam hussein um and i personally don't you know find or i don't feel like this is a contradiction because one be well one because i personally don't see fasting as necessarily a joyful thing um i think more just a neutral act of worship um but also because you know acknowledging that joy and sorrow are often you know can coexist often do coexist um you know we can acknowledge that um you know the belief that um ashura was um you know acknowledge it as the day that um moses and the children of israel were freed from slavery while also acknowledging that it was the day of the battle of karbala um and that these things you know such as life it is often together with joy and sorrow um you know acknowledging the sorrow acknowledging the joy hoping for you know better days ahead so that's you know that's something i think that position is i feel like it's a middle ground um and it it feels right to me i know you know that's that's not how other people will do it but that's the justification for why i do it i i really appreciated your explanation because it showed how to have good boundaries and also have respect for people who are different and i think you know one of the things that we stress a lot at the women's mosque of america is mental health um and i think in a lot of muslim majority countries you do see you know a lack of boundaries a culture of lack of boundaries the inability to say no sometimes um and there are pros and cons to this of course um but i i think when you do practice good boundaries and you know who you are and you own who you are and you know that just because someone disagrees with you doesn't erase who you are you're then able to exist and coexist with others in a healthier way um where you don't feel as threatened by differences um so i really appreciate and that you do um you know acknowledge um a side that's different from your own while also honoring your own beliefs um because i think it's a, a great model of um of how to coexist um does anyone have any final thoughts or anything that they would like to share before we end just want to say how um this is so wonderful really uh, i obviously don't know uh, the folks that have joined on facebook and maybe the ones who will watch even after this when you post this but it really it it almost let lets the guard off the guardrails off you know you you you've created a safe space to have these kinds of conversation and even the ones who are more passionate and more you know vocal about their perspectives uh i tend to be more even keeled but you know heck i know people who are more passionate uh you know and they you know they they will tell you their perspective in a very strong and powerful way wonderful our job my job is to as as uh, samia said be a good listener supportive because 
you know, I want to quote something that uh, when when Imam Ali was a Khalifa uh, and he had sent his uh, ambassador to Egypt, uh, his name was Malik al-Ashtar, and he gave Malik a letter on how to govern the people of Egypt because, and, and there was a phrase in that letter, and that letter is, by the way, in a book called the Nahjul Balagha, also known as Peak of Eloquence, the letters of and sermons of Imam Ali. He says in the letter, you will encounter people who are brothers of yours in faith and equals in humanity. Treat them the same. Be just, be a just ruler. And so to me, I'm like, this is life. This is the code of life everyone should live. We are going to have our different perspectives on life, our different places we worship and different uh, you know, foods we eat. But you know, at the end of the day, we are all one creation of Allah. I think it was Rumi who said there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground, right? So as many ways and humans uh, as there are, are as many ways as there are to legitimately uh, worship God who created us. Um, you know, we are, these days I've been thinking a lot about uh, the prophet's hadith. Uh, even if the end of the world comes and you're planting a seed, keep planting the seed. Um, and I've been reflecting a lot about um, seeing myself as the seed. Um, and, you know, because I think it can be overwhelming, especially during these times with everything that's going on to think like, okay, I'm going to plant, you know, the seed in society, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Um, even if you yourself are the seed, um, you are worthy of planting and growing. And so um, I thank everybody for participating in this and everybody who um, joined us and, and um, shared their comments and reflections. Um, but if you guys see, there's a lot of love coming your way. So um, inshallah, you know, this is just one conversation. Um, in no way do we want to say, you know, there's one Shia view, one Sunni view. Um, this is just one conversation. And of course, there's a lot of nuance um, that we're not hearing here. Um, but the, the idea is to spark your curiosity and get you to learn more. And um, again, I, I want to keep uh, pushing that book, History or uh, Destiny Disrupted, um, because it really is um, such an eye opening experience to learn the history of Islam and um, to also learn um, not only the the history of the Sunni Shia split, but to learn about um, the people who were involved, who, who did truly love and respect each other, um, despite what was going on. And um, I think if we, as Muslims, want to honor their legacy, um, we'll find that we'll be more united than divided, inshallah. All right, thank you, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.